Investing matters a lot when you have a lot of money and saving matters a lot when you don't have a lot of money. So when I say savings for the poor, investing's for the rich, I mean this on absolute sense. So like if you're young or you don't have a lot of assets invested, the only lever you can really pull right now to change your wealth is your savings and your labor income and saving money and getting it invested, right? But as you gain wealth, then you can go and then your investments matter. Then you have to focus so much more on those investments. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Journey to Launch is supported by First Republic Bank. A seamless banking experience is something we all want, but what does it really mean? At First Republic, it means you have access to your own personal banker, someone who knows your name and is there for you when you need them. I know at any time, I can just reach out to my personal banker, Linda, with any questions that I have. It's amazing to know that I won't get the runaround by the automated voice recordings and number prompts that lead you to a dead end that I don't have to be put on hold for hours before I can speak to an actual person. Whether you're browsing their full suite of services or just have questions about your bank statement, you can reach out to your personal banker by phone or email and through the best-in-class banking app. See what a difference an always-on seamless banking experience can make for you. Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, I'm excited to have today's guest in the rocket seat. We have Nick McJulie on the podcast. He's the chief operating officer and data scientist at Rich Holtz Wealth Management, where he oversees operations across the firm and provides insights on business intelligence. He's also the author of dollarsanddata.com, a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. He's also the author of a book we're going to be talking about, just keep buying, which I actually got a chance to read most of it and I really enjoyed it. So I think that you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it, Jamila. Yeah. So, okay, Nick, when I was reading the book, you said you started your blog in 2017. You started blogging. Mm -hmm. And before we pressed record, we talked about kind of like both of us entered into the space around the same time. I started with a podcast. You started with a blog. Your blog is actually very popular from what I could see. You have tons of Twitter followers and people who really read and respect your work. And so when I was uh, introduced to you by our common friend and I I checked out your blog and then I actually read the book, I was like, oh, like no wonder why uh, he's so popular because I felt like you had a fresh take 
on the concepts that we talk about so much. We hear other people in the space talk about. And I wanted to understand for you, like your love for finance, where did that come from? And then wanting to have a blog and even go deeper, right? Some people just like do it for their own personal gain. They fix their own finances. Is that it? Or they're on the sidelines watching, but you like enter the space with your own platform. Talk about your decision to do that. Yeah. So I've always like been into like math, like as a little kid and stuff, but I realized like a lot of the math we learn in school isn't that useful. I can't remember the last time I've had to think about like an isosceles triangle or something like that or right angle. Like, yes, some people will use that if you're in construction or an architect or whatever, but like I always like finding things that are applicable and real. And so I remember when I first learned physics, I was like, oh, this is like the real world. I can drop something and estimate how long it takes to hit the floor or something, right? And I think with the thing about like why I really got into personal finance, I got into economics and I really just got into money because like it affects everybody. Like every single person listening to this, even people not listening to this are affected by money. Like it's a universal language. Like I don't care what religion you have or whatever. Money is a concept that everyone on the planet knows and, you know, they know it very well. So I think because it's so universal, it's something that has affected my life. It's affected, you know, I know it affects everybody's life. And so I'm into numbers. I'm like, where can I take numbers and apply it to, a, you know, to the most number of people. And I think that's got to be in personal finance, investing, things like that. So to me, it seems pretty obvious, like why it's so valuable to everybody. But I just I just enjoy it too. Because like, and I actually like the the mathematics behind this stuff. It's very simple. You don't need like, you know, calculus to do all this stuff. You really just need to know how, you know, add, subtract, multiply, divide, and then a little bit of compounding, which is obviously just like multiplication type stuff. So that's basically it. And you can kind of get the math down to do this stuff. Yeah. I mean, my kids are pretty young, but they're starting, you know, the math concepts now. But this is the kind of stuff we should have learned in school for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. With that, right, you write this book and, you know, you start out the book with a story about your grandfather, which I really like, that he had a gambling. I don't know if you did. Would you say it's an addiction? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. It's one of the worst. I've read on this a little bit and his was pretty bad. I don't think it's the worst I've ever read, but it's up there. So yeah, he had an addiction for a long time and just, and I was, when I was a little kid, like, so I didn't know, like we'd be at the horse races. I just run, I'm watching the ponies run around. I'm a little kid. I love it. I'm like, oh, look, they're running. You know, I have no idea a concept like, oh, my grandfather's been doing this for years and he's throwing away a bunch of money and all that. That wasn't, that was foreign to me, but you know, that's kind of my first interaction with understanding money was kind of in that context, which was interesting. And then you talk about for you seeing him and then on him spending his money, all his retirement income on gambling, like he died with nothing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know the concept die with zero. Like I'm sure you, you know that book, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And you do address this in the book a bit about oversaving. But when you were talking about this story, I, I was wondering, apart from the addiction side of it, was there a part also where it was like, this is how he wanted to spend his money down to zero? Or do you feel like there was something else there? Well, I think the die with zero idea is very different because it's like you start with some money and then you want to give it away and kind of live the life you want and then die with zero. That's kind of the idea versus he didn't really have money. He had income streams and he just blew it all like consistently over years. And I was like, there's nothing wrong like with gambling necessarily, but like there's so much more he could have done with it. And I think like he still could have gambled. He just had to like literally half his bet size. It wouldn't have changed. Like he still could have done all of that stuff, gotten the entertainment out. He could have done all of that without having to like throw all that money away. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm a, and so even in the book, I even the the analogy I give is if he had just taken half his money, invested it in the US stock market, he would die with a million dollars. And that's not the point to die with a million dollars, obviously. I just wanted to illustrate like how he could have still done the same stuff and he could have like 
built wealth, even despite being a gambling addict, which shows like the power of stocks and stuff like that. Right. And you you start with that story, I think, because you talk about these two foundational concepts in building wealth, saving and investing. So I do want to like focus on that and then define first what's saving and what's investing. Because I find depending on who's saying it, it can tend to mean different things, especially the saving part. Yeah. So I think how I would define saving is like, okay, obviously you have some sort of income coming in, you have some sort of expenses and what's left over is kind of what you would save. That's That could just be cash for now. But I think that's savings. And then once you take that money and buy some sort of income producing asset, whether that's a stock or a stock index fund or some sort of real estate or farmland or royalties on a song, I mean, there's a lot of different things you can buy. But once you get that invested, now you're technically investing. Once that money has an option of providing a return to you, that's where I think investing comes in. Because while it's in cash, it can't provide a return. I mean, yes, there are CDs and things like that. So there are exceptions to this. But generally, I would even say a CD is a type of investment because it's locked up and you're not supposed to be able to access it. Right. That's a good basis to start our conversation because one of the quotes you have, and I love that you have like these quotes, like you kind of buck against the standard norm of what sometimes personal finance people say, or you just make definitive statements, which I like. So one of the things you say is saving is for the poor, investing is for the rich. And I'd love for you to break that down. You know, I know it's very absolute and there's obviously nuances in there, but I think it's important for us to explain what that means and then we can dive deeper. So I mean it on both an absolute sense and on a relative sense. So let's go through both of those. So what I talk about in that first chapter is called the save invest continuum. And every person listening to this, every person is on this continuum. And all you need to know where you are is you need two numbers, right? The first number is like, how much money can you save in the next year, right? So let's say you could save 500 bucks a month next 12 months, that's $6,000, right? So that's your first number. And then the second number is like, how much can your investments return you in the next year? So let's say you had $10,000 invested, you expect to get a, you know, let's say 10% return. I'm just making the numbers easy here. So you expect to get $1,000 next year. That's your second number. So remember your first number, how much could you save is 6,000. Your second number, how much could your investments generate for you in a decent year is 1,000. So which one's bigger? In this case, the 6,000 is bigger, right? And so what that means is if you can save 6,000, you should take that money and then get that invested so you can raise the other number. So over time, Though right now your investments are only paying you a thousand a year, if you keep investing and, and get that number higher and higher over time, that number should go higher to the point where once you're like older, and we can, we can just use an extreme example in a, in a second here. Once you're older, you should be able to generate more from your investments than your than you could ever save. So let's use an extreme example. In the book, I talk about when I was 23, I had a thousand dollars to my name. I had all these spreadsheets. I was trying to figure out, oh, how much bonds should I have? How much stocks? I was obsessed. I was neurotic, right? But I didn't realize like, even if I got a 10% return on $1,000, that's 100 bucks. Like I could make that, you know, in, you know, how many hours, even minimum wage, you work one day and there's $100, right? I mean, not after tax, but let's just get close, right? It's getting close to that, right? So one day, is of, one day of work, I could have made that my investment return in a year. I was blowing it, going out with friends and, you know, going to dinner and having shots and all this stuff and like <laughs> partying as a young 22-year-old. Like I was blowing that my investment return in one night easily. And now compare that to someone with like $10 million, Right. If they had a 10% decline or a 10% gain in their portfolio, that's a million bucks. Like to save a million dollars after taxes is very, very difficult unless you have a super high income, right? So, you know, you can see like in the extremes, like it's very obvious. Like, so investing matters a lot when you have a lot of money. 
and saving matters a lot when you don't have a lot of money. So when I say savings for the poor, investings for the rich, I mean this on absolute sense. So like if you're young or you don't have a lot of assets invested, the only lever you can really pull right now to change your wealth is your savings and your labor income and saving money and getting it invested, right? But as you gain wealth, then you can go and then your investments matter. Then you have to focus so much more on those investments. And so it's, it's just about figuring out where you focus your time based on where you are. So even when I say savings for the poor, like I said, I was poor when I was 22. I don't mean ab- I was in abject poverty. I was not, trust me. I was, you know, I had very, I had great privilege, I had great education. So I was not in abject poverty, but I was poor relative to my future self. And that's kind of the idea I wanted to get across. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you actually clarified, like, it's not like you're trying to, because sometimes when people say things like that, like, oh, don't save your money, invest your money, it's kind of like putting down like the saving aspect of things, which is still Mm. equally important, you know, especially like people are not at the space in which they can invest, they have to save money first, to be able to like, invest that money or put money aside other than what they're spending. So I love that, depending on where you are in your life, and on this time continuum, like, it's going to matter. One is going to matter more important than the other. And it, it helps you not waste your time doing the things that don't matter or don't give you as much of a return. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't get me wrong. I, it's nice to learn about investing. I'm not discouraging people from learning about investing, spending a little bit of time. Like, that's fine. I think knowledge is useful. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you're young or you don't have a lot or you're just getting started, like, don't obsess over it. It's not going to matter that much. What's going to matter more is like, what are you going to do with your career? How are you saving money? kind of how are you going to try and grow your income to save money, things like that. I think those are far more important. And and, and that's what I'm saying. If I could go back, I would have like, okay, just put it whatever into S&P 500, 80, 20 portfolio, 20% bonds, and then just not thought about it again. And then just really dug down into like getting better skills, like being a better data scientist or something. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're focusing your attention matters. And what you also do is you say this whole idea of like, save as save as much as you can or saver percentage, right? Like a personal finance rule, right? These rules that are there to help help us maybe encourage us, but sometimes it's discouraging for people. Uh, you talk about like, let's just be real for the fact that some people are not even earning enough money to save the rule percentage of 20% or whatever that can be. So you just say, save what you can, right? Yeah. And I think that's a better, it's for guilt purposes, if you're like, oh, I can't say you're going to just you're going to beat yourself up with so much mental stress about not saving that you're a not going to enjoy your life, you're probably going to perform worse in your job, which is going to affect your income. If you start thinking about the chain reaction of things that happen, and of course, I don't have data on every piece of this, I have data on piece on like just portions of it. I think the guilt culture is really bad. And I just really dislike it. And so I'm like, hey, if you can't save money for the next two years, because you're not in a great spot, or you're not earning enough, that's okay. But think about what you can do to raise your income in the future. And that's that's the only like, yes, cutting spending can can build some wealth, you know, if you're a being excessive with your spending or just a little bit in the short term, but it's a short term solution. It is not a long term solution. The only way out that I've seen in the data, at least, is growing your income. And so that is a long term solution. You have to think long term and say, okay, the next two years are going to suck. I'm not going to save anything. But after that, I'm going to do all these things to try and grow my income. So I think that's what people need to focus on. And that's what I try to like talk about. I love that. And this just speaks to just where people can be in different like places as they're listening to this. And I do want to like just go back a little bit. So when we talk about like saving, right? Like if you can't save anything right now in terms of your cash flow. So like to say, you know, you're working with like a restricted income. And so you don't have room to save additionally to invest. 
the idea for then saving for emergencies, how do you feel about that? Like when you think about someone's cash flow and how they're saving, if they can't invest that money, is there um, a certain amount that they should then save at least for emergencies or have on hand so they're not into like this continuum of putting things on credit card debt or feeling really out of control because emergencies come up in life during that time period where they can't invest? Yeah, I think I think having emergency cat that's like if I have to pick like, you know, in the order of operations of what you do for like, do you max out your 401k or do you get emergency? No, emergency cash is number one, right? Because you don't want anything that's going to prevent you from like living your life and doing everything. For example, let's say you don't have emergency cash and you require a car to get to work. That's what many Americans need a car, some sort of transportation. Your car breaks down. You don't have emergency cash. Now you can't get to work. Now your income's in jeopardy, right? So you have to make sure that as long as you can keep having your income, whatever you need to make sure that that can keep happening. If that makes sure you have a 5,000, 10,000, whatever cash reserve, that's what's important. And I think, I can't remember exactly what the, I, I can't remember if I put it in the book. I think I did where I said the average emergency expense, like a couple thousand dollars, but this, these do, they do happen and they happen. Like I think over a 10 year period, the probability of someone having a financial emergency is like 98%. In a one year period, it's not that high, but over a 10, if you assume they're independent, like every year kind of just like flipping a coin, so to speak. Um, but the coin is weighted to like a financial emergency over 10 years, like the chance you're gonna have a financial emergency is like almost certain, right? So you're saying, oh, it won't happen to me. It will. It's just a matter of when. And so just kind of prepare for that. And so having that money is incredibly important. And trust me, I'm I'm definitely against credit cards for the most part, because like the high interest rate and stuff. But if you're in a bad spot and you're like, you, it's an emergency and you need to do Remember, there's a real emergency, not like, oh, I these new shoes came out, I had to get them or this new watch, I had to get this new watch. Like, no, that's not an emergency. Let's be honest, be honest with yourself. But if you're really in an emergency, like there are times when like you have to use credit cards, you have to rely on things and you just got to find a way to get out of that. So I wouldn't, don't beat yourself up because that's going to harm you more. and It's going to make it more difficult to get out of those situations. Yeah. For me, like in my situation, when I decided to quit my job and leave, like I, we could not save and invest as much as we did when we were working. So we were not following the rules. We don't really follow the rules anymore. We follow the rules that we make up. <laughs> Right. Like we have guidelines and then you can deviate. But I just think it's helpful because I know if you're listening to this podcast, you probably listen to maybe other personal finance podcasts and you sometimes do hear this is what you should be doing. But you got to always like transplant like the advice you're hearing to your situation to make sure it's like relative. And if it's not, it's okay to adjust kind of like you're releasing people from that feeling of if like it's legitimately you cannot save or invest right now. It is okay at least then now focus on your career, your income so that you can get in a better place. Exactly. And I think another thing too, is like a lot of remember these aren't like my opinions that I'm like, Oh, I really believe this. No, it's like, I'm looking at data and this is what the data is saying. So what you were just talking about, like when you couldn't save and invest as much when you kind of left your corporate job, like that makes sense because you had obviously your income was fluctuating. Right. And so I think a lot of this, you look at the data, like incomes are more variable today than they used to be because we have obviously two income earners now versus one we used to I mean, think about it, a lot of the savings advice stuff comes from like the 50s when there was like the husband would work the wife would stay at home there was pensions everything was much more stable in that in terms of incomes back then now it's much more variable so realizing that things are more variable the, the advice has to adapt with it and i think save what you can is much more adaptable and that's you know and i use an analogy in there there's this analogy with fish you'll see you'll see if you read chapter two it's a decent analogy i think and it'll explain what they do and how like this is actually kind of copies nature in some way like there's times when there's times when the feast and there's times when there's gonna be famine and you have to kind of like be ready for those types of moments with your financial life yeah like you have to be financially flexible um not rigid with um what you're doing 
you just mentioned kind of like, you know, like be real with yourself. Like, you know, it's not necessarily if you cannot afford like to go out and buy something, you're not like to do that. But I do think you address something that's really important is which is spending guilt free and like this kind of push and pull between saving too much, which kind of gets to the die with zero theme of like having too much at the end of your life versus like spending money. And so some of us are in the position where we can like spend money and enjoy our life but we don't feel comfortable. We feel like we should be saving more, investing more. And I thought you had a great rule. You have this two times rule, which helps you spend money without guilt. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So the two X rule is basically like, let's say you want to spend a hundred dollars on, I don't know, something on a splurge. It doesn't matter what the amount is, whatever, if it feels like a splurge to you, this is what matters. So if you say, Hey, I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on a very fancy dinner, right? Okay. Instead of just spending that hundred to make yourself feel better, you save another hundred, so two hundred, two x, and you take that other hundred and you invest it in, let's say, you know, an S and P five hundred index fund, or you can donate it. There's different ways you can do this. Like you're like, hey, if I'm going to spend a hundred on myself, I'm going to spend a hundred on someone else and help someone else at the same time. So, or if you like want to get a nice handbag or a nice watch or whatever it is that whatever you consider a splurge, if you just save double the amount of that. And then you'll say like, okay, if I really want it, I'll save double and then I'll, you know, donate it to either a good cause or I'm going to invest in myself for my future, right? So one way or another, I think there's just, these are just little tricks to like kind of get over spending guilt and stuff. But yeah, I just thought this would be helpful for people because I'm, I'm just saying what my whole thing is like, let's stop with all the guilt stuff. Like this is money. It affects everybody. Like it's a very normal thing. I understand why people feel guilty at the same time. Like I don't think it's healthy for us. I think stress, like I've read a lot on stress. There's a great book called why zebras don't get ulcers. And it's all about stress. And it's basically like stress impacts people in so many different ways. And I think the more we focus on that, the more it adversely affects us. So I'm trying to get people to stress less about money. And like, you know, here's what the data says, like, you'll probably be fine, etc. Yeah, yeah, I think most of and I'm sure even with like, your analysis and the data, knowing the strategic things to do, like money, a lot of it is psychological. And we, you talk about this more and we're going to talk about it later on or even now, but how, you know, it doesn't matter like how much money you even have, you may never feel comfortable or rich. And you, you may be sitting or standing from your vantage point now and saying, well, when I get this amount saved and invested, I'll be fine. And then realize when you get there, you'll be like, actually, I need more than that. Right. So I think releasing or having these like tricks but that are effective um, and whatever that may mean for you, like it's helpful so that you can kind of like manage like the emotional toil and like mindset that comes with the spending and saving and investing of money. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's funny. There's so many different, like I didn't put everything in the book that I quote about not feeling rich. Someone once asked like John D. Rockefeller, how much more money do you need? You know, And his response was like, just a little bit more. And that's always like, even rich people like, you know, if I just had two or three X, I would be, I promise I would never want any more. But the issue is you're always climbing that ladder. And I think the the real thing here is like, as you start to like, let's say level up or whatever you want to call it, like you start to make more money, you're doing better. You're going to start probably hanging out with people who are doing better. And then you're going to be like, wow, they're doing even better. I need to catch up to them. And so it's a game you can play forever if you really want to. I think the, the key to not playing that game is like kind of realizing where you came from, trying to look at absolute measures and not relative measures. And trust me, I understand like, while it's always going to feel relative, like the average person today like lives has better healthcare and lives better than a thousand years ago. Like, you know, even the the richest person in the world would could have died of some random disease that that, that no one could get today because we have cures for it. Right. So there's just things like that where like in certain measures, like people are living better today than they've ever lived. But of course, you know, everything's relative too, right? There's a lot of, you know, things there. So 
we can definitely dig into it more. I think there's a lot more psychology and why people don't feel rich, but it's it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes along with like this idea of, let's say you're successful, right? Like you're successful in growing your income, getting those bonuses, raises, changing careers, whatever that means. So you're on a trajectory where you're, it's, you know, it's positive. There's a net gain over time, but then it comes to like, then how much of that gain do you spend on yourself versus save? And you do address this in the book, but I'd love to like go over that because I found that it was helpful for me while I was in college, like not earning a lot that when I didn't get my full-time job, like I kind of kept it very kind of rigid and was able to save a lot. But then, you know, as I got older, as I had more responsibilities and my wants changed, right? Like I didn't want to go on vacation and share a room with six of my friends anymore. Like I, now I want to go and like have a nice, like nicer vacation and spend more money. But I think sometimes people get caught up with now, how much of that should I be spending on myself if I got that bonus and raise? Cause hey, I deserve it versus no, you should be actually saving that. So what's your thought? A lot depends where you're starting. So for example, if you're in like deep debt and like really bad debt and you're like, oh, I got a raise, like how much of that? You should probably just, you once you need to get out of that really bad situation. Once you're out of a, I don't mean like, okay, you have some mortgage debt, that's fine. I mean like you're deep in like credit card debt or something like really high interest stuff. In those cases, you probably got to save everything, you know, but once you're out of that, once you're in a decent spot, this is like the question of someone who's like, hey, I'm saving. I feel like I'm going to, I'm on a decent path of retirement. I'm going to be Okay. And that's the people I'm trying to talk to with that chapter, with this raise chapter, because there's a lot of people like, okay, I just, I'm in this decent steady state, we'll call it an equilibrium, whatever you want to call it. And then I have this, what economists call a positive shock. So I got a raise or I got a big bonus, right? So this positive thing happened to me. What do I do with that money? Basically, I've done some simulations which show like, okay, based on your initial savings rate, you know, how much of that raise should you save to kind of retire at the same time? That's the idea, right? Because if you think about a raise, right, if you get a raise... If you save all of it, right, you're going to retire sooner, right? If you save none of it, you're actually going to retire later. And you're saying, well, why is that? Well, because remember in retirement, let's assume you want to have the same spending throughout your life, right? If you don't save any of it, that means your spending just shot up by the raise amount, right? So if you were spending, let's say 20 grand a year, and then you got a $5,000 after tax raise and you save none of it, now you're spending 25 grand a year, right? So that extra five grand, that's going in perpetuity till your death, whenever that is, we'll model it in some way, right? But now you're spending that forever and you weren't saving for that in the past, but now you have to save for that. So you have to like delay your retirement. You see that simple, you can understand like it's affecting how it's affecting your spending is what matters. So anyways, long story short, I run all these simulations and basically like I find that you need to save about half of it, right? It's, it's just, it's funny that it came, it, the, the numbers kind of got to around 50% and actually kind of funny that also matches the two X rules. So it's very easy to remember, but as long as you're saving about half of that raise, you can save half and you can spend the other half and you'll still retire around the same point. That's the, that's the kind of the key there, right? It's because you're you're going to keep your spending the same. So you're not only is your spending going to go up now, but it's going to go up into retirement and beyond. And, you know, that 50% rule is very simple and easy to remember. It's like half's for you and then the other half's for future you, right? So that's another way to think about it. Yeah. And you could also say like maybe with a raise that affects like your continuous paycheck, that's going to impact like ongoing expenses where you can increase like, right. Versus like one-time bonus, that may be a little bit different where that's going to be a like a one-time purchase, maybe like a trip or a car or like kind of like those bigger purchases. I think it's important to like separate that out too. Like not all increases are equal depending on where you're raising or putting that extra money to within your desired expenses. 
Yeah, I should have mentioned that in the book. I did not, but that's a great point. I mean, I think the raise, I, I was trying to focus more on the raise because that's where I think most people get. Don't get me wrong, people get bonuses, obviously. I just think the 50%, just use it across the board. It's just easy. It's so easy to remember. I'm just lazy. I don't want to be like, okay, what should we do in this case? But yeah. And it also depends what you're going to do. Obviously, if you get a bonus and you need to take care of something, like, yeah, use the whole bonus and spend it all if you have to. Like, you know, I'm not trying to give these rigid rules like you have to save 20%, you have to save 50% of your raise. There's going to be obviously exceptions to this. But if you're like, hey, I don't know what to do with this money. Like, okay, I, I want to spend some of it, but like, I don't know. Like, okay, splurge half of it, take the other half and save it, right? That's my argument. Yeah, I agree. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Side Hustle Pro podcast. Side Hustle Pro is the first and only podcast to spotlight bold black women entrepreneurs who have scaled from side hustle to profitable business. Host Nikayla Matthews Okome highlights the journey of Black women business owners and shares how they got started, how they marketed their businesses, how they keep their businesses growing, and so much more. From figuring out what your side hustle should even be to learning how to turn it into a business, Side Hustle Pro will breathe life into the multi-passionate side hustler in you. And because the ultimate goal is money and time freedom, hello, journeyers, you know that's what we want. Learning how to start and grow a profitable side hustle is something you should be looking into as a means to get to your financial freedom goals. Featured by the Today Show, Oprah Magazine, Forbes, and Apple Podcasts as a top business podcast, it's a must listen to add to your podcast list. Subscribe and check out the Side Hustle Pro podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We talk about debt, and I think we kind of have the same view on debt. Like, I don't hate debt. I currently use debt, and but in a way that is helpful for me. So I know for certain people, depending on where you are, like, it's like, no way, I'm not touching debt. But in some scenarios, like, debt can be useful. So let's just talk through a bit, like, if one should use debt, like, why that can be helpful for them and your thoughts around it. Yeah, so I think the two most useful pieces for debt are, I'm going to say mortgage debt, and then the second one is, you know, student loan debt. But obviously, the second one's very conditional, like, I'm going to be very conditional here. It's like, what are you getting with your, you know, when you're getting a degree of some sort? What are you going there for? Do you know if the market even supports that? There's a lot of questions there and how much you're paying. There's, there's a lot of calculations you have to do. But basically, I have like a simple formula you can use in there, which is it try to it tries to simplify a lot of stuff. And it basically just says like, okay, if you assume a couple things, here's how much you should be willing to pay for this right going forward. I think that's the key is like figuring out like, okay, debt can make sense if it's gonna like, for example, if your earnings are, let's say $50,000 a year over 40 years, let's say on average, that's $2 million total lifetime income, right? If going to get a degree is going to double that now, that's pretty extreme. I don't think that's true for most cases. But let's just say that's true. That means $2 million. Okay, that means you'd pay 2 million for your degree, you have to discount all those earnings back to the present, there's all this, you know, and the, the formula does that. But basically taking that you can say, okay, maybe I'd be willing to pay like $100,000 or $200,000 for that at all else equal, right? So it's about realizing like, is this going to really impact my income? And I and don't get me wrong, there's people that just, you know, if you want to get an education, get education, like, there's some personal pride in that too. So I don't, it's not just dollars and cents. But like, 
if you really are focused on dollars and cents, like make sure that there's some like you have some objective criteria, like look, without this degree, here's what I would expect to make in the marketplace with these types of jobs, or find other people that are similar to you that like, hey, I feel like they're like me, and they didn't get a degree. And here's what they did. And then here's people like that grew up in my town that got a degree and kind of similar to me. And here's what they did. And so you can kind of see the difference. There's, there's ways to do this where you can get a rough idea of how much your earnings might increase as a result of doing that. So in terms of debt overall, like, yeah, I said, mortgage debt usually doesn't affect people mentally. There's no stress around that. And then student loan debt, um, business debt. I don't know as much about that, but I know if you're trying to start a business, sometimes people do that. Other ways you can sell equity. There's different ways of doing that, but those are the types of debt I would recommend. And obviously, like once in a once in a while, if you really, really need it, and it's just a dire straits like credit card debt can be useful. But generally, I say try to avoid that. Really, the the ultimate thing, you know, debt is most useful to it's kind of ironic, like debt is most useful to people who don't need it. You know, it's like, oh, that when you have a lot of money, then you make more money, it like makes no sense. Like, I don't have any money. And like, no one wants to pay me anything yet. Once you have a ton of money, they just give you more money, they give you free, you know, cheaper rates and all that stuff, right? It's the same with debt. You know, the people that can that don't need debt can use it most effectively. And I think a great example is an extreme example. But, you know, when Elon Musk, he was not selling his Tesla shares, he was using them as collateral and he was borrowing against it at super low interest rate. So he could fund his lifestyle without ever having to sell any shares, which is kind of interesting, right? So he can keep that equity, the equity can keep appreciating. And he doesn't have to do any, he doesn't have to sell, pay taxes or any of that stuff on that type of thing. So that's an extreme example, but I think it illustrates how debt it really is for people that don't need it. It really, it's optimal for those people. Like if you can put 20% down, I'm not saying you have to put down 20% down on a home, but like the people that can put 20% down and don't are probably much better off than the people that can't even afford to put 20% down, right? Right. It's kind of like who wields the weapon. Like it matters who's like holding the sword like that, like how it strikes because you're totally right in terms of it's a choice. You say this in the book too, like, Basically, like when it's a choice, that's when it's beneficial. Like when I can buy it in cash, but I choose not to because I rather get that credit card point and just pay it off at the end of the month. I'm in a position of power versus someone who unfortunately, like they literally don't have an option. Like they have to do this thing. And then I think there's people who don't have an option. They It's a necessity. They had to put it on their credit card debt. The people who are just like, oh, this is a splurge, but I can pay it in cash and I'm just going to leverage that. And then there's that kind of like, you actually shouldn't be doing this. Like, you know, it's not part of your financial goals and it's taking you further away from what you're saying you want to do. Yeah, I agree. And so I think that having that alignment is important. So if you really want a house and it's like, well, I got to take out debt to have to own a home, then that's what you have to do, right? There's not really many options. You know, it's very difficult and expensive to own a home straight cash. And I wouldn't even necessarily recommend that, you know, because, you know, if you think about, you know, I talk about this in the real estate chapter, but, you know, you lock in your payment and if inflation's high, so anyone who bought a home, you know, in 2017, 2018 right now is feeling great because like inflation's going up in theory, their income should be going up with it in some way, let's hope, but their payment's not. Their house payment is fixed, right? And that's going to be fixed forever. And I use an example of my grandparents, you know, they bought a home in California in like 1972. Trust me, price was much lower than it was like $27,000 for a home. Their mortgage payment was like two seventy a month or something or two eighty a month. And within 10 years due to inflation, that was technically cut in half in real terms, right? So assume my grandfather's pay just moved, just was pegged to inflation exactly. 10 years later, his house payment was cut in half based on if his pay doubled basically and, and you know, his payment didn't move, right? So that's kind of the the beauty of like long-term debt is by the end, it's so small that it's, it's minuscule. Right. Unless you, and you know, in case of 
people who are over leveraging and buying too much house, then the mortgage does become like the problem. So in all of these like scenarios, whether it's your education or buying a home or buying that bag, like you do have to like be smart. Of course. Yeah. It's always like, you know, the, the tackling at the top of my book says act smart or live richer. So that's kind of the idea is like, you know, trying to help people make better decisions with their money and their life. And, you know, it's of course money matters, but like, that's just like one piece of the whole thing. All right. Let's talk about another way to be smart with our money, which is investing. So the, you focus on saving and investing. Investing. Let's discuss why people should invest. It's so simple, but I feel like we still need to encourage people. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So I think that there's a couple of reasons why people want to invest. The first thing is, well, it's kind of in the news right now is inflation, right? Inflation is going to, if you're just saving money, that's great. I, I think that's a good behavior already. But if it's just sitting in cash for a long time, that money is losing value. It's purchasing less goods over time, right? And so what's going to happen is, you know, inflation over the, let's say the last year, I, I don't know what's going to, the next print's going to be, but it was like 8.5%. So whatever you could buy before and, you know, all else equal, you're buying 8.5% less of goods with your same, let's say $100 than you could have bought a year prior. And obviously inflation is very disparate in the sense of like certain, you know, maybe gas prices are much higher, but like televisions are lower. So like every inflation is very unique how like it affects different goods differently. So that's one thing you want to preserve your purchasing power to be able to buy the same stuff over time, right? So in the future, you don't have like, you know, you're trying to buy the same thing. And it's like, wait, that's way more expensive. So that's why we invest to offset that. That's one reason. Another reason is to save for your future self. That's like a thing. And when you actually look at the data on they basically ask people like, why are you saving money? And there's a bunch of different motivations. And the one that's most common or the one that actually helps people save more is not like, oh, save for your kids or save for a vacation. Nope, none of that works. What really works is get people to save for themselves. Be selfish. So when you want to save more money, think selfishly. Uh, one of the experiments they did, for example, I don't know if you guys remember, there was like this app called like Face App or Facetune or something where like you had a picture of your face and then they aged you, made you look like really old. I remember this thing happened recently. But this was like before that they had like they basically used this type of Face App. And when people saw older versions of themselves, they started to save more. And so I think it's like thinking about like you're going to probably be an old person one day. So you probably need to save more money. So that's the second thing. So like, you know, we talked about inflation, you know, to prefer purchasing power. We talked about saving for your future self. And the third, the third reason um, is to preserve is to like convert your human capital into financial capital. So what do I mean by that? Your human capital is really just like all your skills and time and everything, the value of all that that has value right now. And so as you go out and work in the marketplace, you're using those skills to like kind of turn that that value you have into financial value, which is the money you're earning, right? And the idea is if you get that money invested, that money is going to start earning you money on itself, right? And so it's what I talked about earlier in the interview with the save invest continuum, right? Early on, you have a lot of financial, or I'm sorry, a lot of human capital and you have all that and you can save money and you take that and turn that into financial capital, like investing in stocks or farmland or whatever, income producing assets, such that that financial capital can replace your human capital. That's the idea is over time, you should see, you should be able to earn more money, ideally, from your investments than you could earn in the marketplace one day, you know, like once you're older, once you're in your 60s or something like you should, you should be able to, uh, if everything goes according to plan, you should be able to have like your investments give you more money than you could like save in a year. That would be ideal, right? Thank you for breaking that down. And I think it's interesting, like you said that people said investing for themselves, their future self is the primary motivator because, you know, I've been thinking like how to get people more, like, especially even people in my life, like get them more excited about like investing now for their future self. And I find like in real life, yeah, they want to, but it's like, yeah, but I want it now. Like they want to use their money today 
or enjoy experiences today. And so the human capital, like changing it from human capital to financial capital, I feel like if you can convince people that that can happen sooner rather than later, like, yes, it's long term, but that kind of like this idea of financial independence, retire early, which is why I think so many people are like myself was attracted to it. It's like, how can I like shorten that and like have my money working for me faster than in 30 years? That's just something that stood out to me. Yeah, I think that's definitely something you can do. You got to think about like, you know, hey, if I start getting, um, you know, start saving more aggressively earlier, like, yes, you can kind of supercharge that. And I understand there is that pull, right? That's why there's this like kind of guilt thing like, oh, every dollar I, I'm spending, I could be saving, right? And I understand that. And that that makes sense to me. So at the same time, like you, you want to strike a balance, right? You want to not completely deprive yourself. But at the same time, you also want to make sure that you can um, live the life you want to live to some extent. All right. Here's the other thing that I know just trips people up and causes them not to even start or just like run in circles is where to invest first. Like, 401k, Roth IRA. You know, I always like to kind of go back to the basics in cases like the first time someone is hearing these terms. So can you quickly just define those? But then let's talk about where someone should be looking to put their money first. Of course. Yeah. So um, in terms of discussing like 401k and IRA, so 401k is going to be an employer-sponsored retirement plan. So your employer will either have one or not. And you'll know, I mean, they, you probably this point should know, right? If you don't know, maybe talk to someone, talk to someone in HR and say, do we have a 401k plan? And if you're doing that, basically your 401k is just going to take some money out of your paycheck, every paycheck, and it's going to invest it in, you have to pick something, you have to go pick the options. They're only going to have a limited set of options. You can't pick whatever you want. You can't pick, you know, GameStop or whatever. I'm not, I'm not recommending GameStop, by the way. I'm just throwing it as an example. So you can't pick whatever you want. You have to kind of look at what are the options that are there. That's with the something like 401k or a Roth 401k. That's pre or post tax. I mean, something like an IRA, that's an account you have to set up on your own, but you get to pick what you invest in, right? And it's also non-taxable in the sense of any of the investment gains will not be taxed, right? So the difference between like an IRA and a 401k and something like a traditional brokerage account is that any gains you have on your investments, so let's say you put $100 in, a year from now, let's say it's $110, that $10 is a gain. And so if you sell your investment after a year, you're going to have to pay some tax on that $10 gain, right? So let's say you're in the 15% bracket on the capital gains bracket. That means of that $10, you have to pay $150 to the government and you get to keep the other $850 on the gain, right? And of course, imagine it's like $100,000 and you know you get a 15% return, it's fifteen grand. I'm sorry, a 10% return, that's ten grand, And then you owe that 15%. So you're paying $1,500 to the government, you're keeping $8,500, etc. So those are different types of accounts, right? And so where to invest first? Obviously, I think, you know, having some sort of stuff for retirement is very important. So I do recommend people putting money into their 401ks and IRAs and the 401k, especially if there's an employer match, because that's like free money. So if they're going to match 4%, I would say just due to the match. Um, I have some controversial opinions on whether people should max or not. We can get to that. But I think for the most part, like at least get to the match. And then if you want to do an IRA, you can do that as well. There are sometimes income limits on those. So you got to be careful to make sure you don't make too much money. Then you can't put money into an IRA, things like that. And then, you know, I I think where you invest, especially when you're starting, doesn't matter as much. Just get started. Find a way to like start saving money and putting it into an account. And, you know, as I said, you can do a target date fund or something or you can just put it into like, I don't know. I'm not going to, I don't want to pick an allocation for people. 
the issue is there's no right way to get rich. Like there's so many ways that people have gotten rich. Like you can get rich in real estate. You can get rich with farmland. You can get rich with stock index funds. You can get rich. Like I can go down the list. There's a lot of ways to go rich. There's only like a handful of ways to go broke. And that's usually high costs, which is like high spending, high fees, things like that, or high risk, which is like high leverage, or you're concentrated all in one stock or one like penny stock or a crypto random cryptocurrency like things like that that's how people go broke right and so you want to avoid those things that's more important i don't really discuss that in the book but i think i'm going to put out a bonus chapter that i'm going to release to fans that's going to be kind of discussing those ideas so that's the main takeaway there is like don't worry as much about exactly what you're like the exact mix doesn't matter too much like try and you know figure okay i want some amount of risk but I don't know how much exactly you got to figure that out. So that's like a stock bond mix. Plus you can have other income producing assets in there. So that's what I would say is like find some mix that works for you. And especially if you're just starting, focus more on your income and your career because that's how you're going to really start leveling up. It doesn't matter if you're 15% bonds or 30% bonds, that's going to be almost irrelevant for someone who's starting. What's going to matter is like, as I said, income and career. Yeah. Well, you say to focus more on where you invest, kind of like as you gain assets, as you have a bigger portfolio, right? That's more important there. Yeah. And I would recommend people open a brokerage account, whether you're going to do that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to pick any, there's no right place to go. You can do this at like a lot of places like, you know, Chase has one, Schwab has one, TD, Fidelity. Like there's so many places you can do this at Vanguard. You can technically, I think, open a brokerage account, right? And now with, I think with Plaid, which I think allows you to connect your bank. So almost any bank you can connect to another just online. You don't have to go in anymore to a branch and physically fill out paperwork, which I think is kind of cool. So I think there's a lot you can do just with like, you know, a brokerage account. It's on top of like, yes, you want to save in your retirement account, save for your future. Of course, you want that tax savings that helps. In addition to that, though, I do think people should have more brokerage accounts. I'm definitely big on like getting people and like using after tax money investing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about like your controversial opinion and also like for you, what kind of and related to just your personal story in, you felt at one point, like looking back, that you put too much money in a 401k. Yes. So my controversial opinion is that you probably shouldn't max your 401k. Don't get me wrong. There are exceptions, which we can get into. But I think the issue is, you know, most personal finance experts across the board have just said like, max your 401k, max your 401k, max your 401k. No one's actually run the numbers. How big is that? There's a benefit to to using a 401k over just taking that money, having it in a taxable account, like a brokerage account. There is a difference there, right? Because there is some sort of like tax savings or tax alpha, as they would call it, that you're going to get. I do some calculations and I, it's roughly around, you know, 0.7% a year, right? And that's not nothing. Don't get me wrong. That compound over a long time can be a lot of money. The problem though is that figure doesn't include your all-in 401k fees, the fees you're paying on. Because remember, in a 401k, you can't choose the option. So if you're, if you happen to pick like investment funds, like or funds in there that are more expensive than what you could get on the outside, like you can get a low cost US stock S&P 500 index fund for like 0.05%. So if by chance, let's say your fund costs like 0.7%. And remember, there's a 0.7% benefit. That means basically all of the benefit of having that in a 401k is wiped out because you're paying it in fees. And that doesn't include like the all in 401k fees. If you don't know the fees, I would talk to someone in HR and say, hey, can someone explain this to me and like walk me through all the fees and stuff. And if they don't know, they should probably go to someone and they'll probably get that information back to you. But it's good to know that because then you realize like, oh my gosh, like, there's so many Americans out there in 401k plans that are maxing out right now and they don't realize that the fees they're paying is larger than the expected benefit they're going to get. So 
What that means is they should probably take that money and then have it on the outside in a brokerage account, and then they could better invest it in cheaper funds and have more money in the end than by locking it up into a bad plan, basically. And so that takes into account the tax savings that someone is saving from not. So with the pre-tax retirement account, you know, like it reduces your taxable income when you're investing in like a 401k. So is that that benefit take into account the tax savings on that? This is where it's a little more complex because there's technically two layers of taxation, right? So there's the traditional 401k that we all know, and then there's the Roth 401k. Now, what's the difference? With the traditional, you take that money, you put it into the account, and it doesn't count as your taxable income. So you don't have to pay anything to the IRS on that money, right? With the Roth, you pay your taxes to the IRS, and then you take the money after you paid those taxes, and then you put it in. I'm talking about the Roth specifically. And why does this matter? Because that 0.7% annual tax benefit I'm talking about is avoiding capital gains. That's the real benefit you're going to get in a in a 401k that's like easily measurable. Because whether you do a traditional or a Roth, like paying tax now versus paying tax later, you're going to pay income tax, right? So I make this assumption that your income taxes are the same over time. That's not necessarily true. The problem is we can't predict future income taxes. I have no, I always thought like, oh, income taxes are going up. So you should do Roth, right? Because you want to pay your, pay the lower tax now instead of the higher tax later. I thought that in 2012. Then guess what? The 2017, you know, tax cut and jobs acts come out and tax rates go down. So I was, it's hard to predict tax policy. And I think it's, difficult to be like, okay, well, I'm going to play this tax game where I'm going to try and guess. So I'm just like, let's just assume tax rates are constant over your life such that like, if you do Roth or traditional, it doesn't make a difference, right? On your 401k. So like, let's put that piece aside because that that's happening separately, right? So assuming you've already paid your tax, right? That's already happened. The income tax has to be paid no matter what, whether you put that into a brokerage account or a Roth or, or a traditional, the income tax has to be paid. You can't avoid that. But what the 401k does, it allows you to avoid the capital gains tax, right? As I talked about earlier, if you have $100, you gain 10%, it goes to 110. You sell it after a year, that's like a 15% tax you're going to owe, right? And that's what the rates are now. For most people, it's about 15% tax. You pay that, that 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 $10, you pay the 15%. So you give the 150 to the government and you keep the 850, right? So if that was in a 401k, when you sold it, you wouldn't have to pay any of that 150. You keep all $10. You don't, you, instead of keeping 850, you keep the full $10, right? The idea is like that little 15% over time, that's about, you know, 0.7% a year, 70 basis points as they call it, right? So it's almost a percent a year. So that's the that's the tax off I'm talking about. So if those fees are high enough in the 401k, it completely negates that capital gains. Like it's better for you to pay capital gains in a brokerage account, right? That 15% over the long haul than it is for you to go and pay 1% a year on your funds in a 401k. So that's it. And technically the argument, this is even more, if we really want to get into it, I can actually kind of overlook this and I should have included it in the book, but if we really want to get into it, like, I, I don't know if you know this, but a single person with no other income, if you only have capital gains, right, that's your only source of income is capital gains, right? You have no other income, you can have $50,000 a year tax-free. So let's say you have, I don't know, let's say you have a, a million dollars invested and it's paying you a 5% yield a year. Of course, this is kind of outrageous. No, nothing's paying 5% a year, but let's just say it is a million dollars in the stock market and it's paying you 5% a year. You can have that as capital gains and you pay 0% tax on that. That is a current, it's like 40,000 plus the standard deduction. It's about 50. So for a couple, you can have $100,000 a year tax-free. So imagine that. Now compare the your 401k plan and now compare that to putting it in a brokerage account where you can have $100,000 a year and it's just sending you money tax-free, 0% tax rate. That is in the tax law. You can look this up. 
it's you have to, obviously you have to have a lot of money invested to have a hundred thousand dollars in income coming in on capital gains. But that's a whole nother. I didn't even get into that in the book. If you include that, that like it really kind of says like, do you really want to max? Like I think you should. Everyone should go up to the match, and after that, you need to really think about it because there's. I mean, of, co- of course, I talked about a lot of numbers. I didn't even get into the flexibility option. Like, what if you need the money for something? Like, for example, if I wanted to buy a place in Manhattan right now, I just couldn't because like the down payments are so large. Like. I would just need, it would take me, it's going to take me a few more years to get there because I put so much more money into my 401k because I maxed because everyone said so. So on top of the flexibility, I don't think the financial benefit, the tax alpha, as I call it, is that large that it's going to make sense for a lot of people. So I'm saying like, just hit the match, no matter what, get your employer match. And after that, keep the money outside. It's a little bit more flexible. That's my take. Okay. I I, I love it. And I don't want to like beat this any more. Like, I just want to like make a point and or just say that I know when some people in the financial independence community, like what they're doing is they're assuming that their income in retirement is going to be less so that they're just banking on, let me just like make all the money I can now, but have a a tax rate that's lower because, or my tax rate is higher now. So I'm going to, or my income is higher now. I'm kind of reduce what my taxable income is. And then I'll worry about getting my money out in the future when I need it, because I'm going to be earning less in early retirement or retirement. That's kind of the the assumption that like I went in and it was just like, I'll worry about it later. But I think everything you said, and you can definitely like respond or like have a point to that is kind of like, this is why it's important to, yeah, follow the rules of thumbs and like do certain things. But now you have to like do a more analysis based on your scenario, based on your life. And then even like talk to a financial planner or an advisor who you can ask these questions to specific to your situation and can help you kind of run these scenarios. That's exactly correct. This is why I hate writing on taxes and I may never do it again because everything is about your personal situation. You're completely right. If you, for example, let's say you live in California and New York right now, high tax states, state state income tax is high, but you know you're going to retire in a low income income state, let's say Texas or Florida, and let's let's just assume state income taxes stay constant forever. That's a huge benefit because you know you're you'd want to avoid the tax now, so you'd have a traditional you know four hundred one k now avoid the tax now, and then in retirement you pull it out and you don't have to pay state income tax, right? So you can see that's like a little state income tax arbitrage where in that case it would make more sense to to max out. That's probably worth more than that little tax alpha thing I was talking about. So. I just wanted to raise awareness around this issue and just to be a little bit more open about it because when every single person says max out your 401k, I think it's a problem. And I think it's like, let's really look at this. And like, I just want people to question it. No one's ever questioned it. And that's what I'm trying to do here. But I completely agree with you. It depends on a lot of factors. You're right. If you're going to be pulling out 20 grand a year, but right now you're making 120 grand a year, it makes sense probably to max your 401k because when you're pulling out 20 grand in retirement, the marginal tax rates then, even if tax rates go up, are probably going to be lower than the tax rates you're going to be paying now, right? So I completely agree on all those sectors. And it, and for a lot of people, it'll, it could even make sense to max 401k if tax rates were to increase a lot in the future, like for everyone it would make sense. Or if capital gains were to double, then yes, my whole analysis is junk now, right? So like, there's so many factors. I'm saying right now with the current information I have, I'm not sure it's right for everyone. And that's kind of, I just want to open that possibility up. I'm not saying I'm right forever. I'm just possibly a little right now. That's all. Yeah. Well, listen, we're critical thinkers here and everyone listening is a critical thinker. So this is just like encouraging you to dig deeper and think uh, more about like your money and your investments. One thing you mentioned in the book, I really like the way you said this, but I'd love for you to explain it is that you said we begin our lives as growth stocks and then we end our lives as value stocks. What does that mean? Yeah. So just a quick refresher, growth stocks are those stocks that have very high expectations. Like you expect a lot from them and that's why their prices get bid up a lot. And you can think of like, 
everyone probably can think of stocks that were like kind of peaking in November 2021, you know, like, or even before that, like there's a lot of stocks that are really high, the Pelotons of the world, the Zooms, all these things that high growth, everything's happening. Oh, the pandemic happened, all these stocks are going to the moon. And then value stocks are those that have been beaten down very badly. And, and no one thinks there's anything's going to come good from them. But there's usually these positive upside surprises like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. And so then these stocks tend out. So that's why value stocks historically over very long periods of time have outperformed growth stocks because like growth gets, you know, really highly valued. And then those expectations usually don't happen. They come down and value stocks are very beaten down, but then there's upside surprises. So over over the long haul, values being growth. Recently, that's not necessarily true, but over the long haul, that's true. And how does that relate to our lives? And I said, you know, we begin our lives as growth stocks, we end our lives as value stocks. If you look at some of the happiness data, there's a lot of people, especially in like your early 20s, you have all these expectations for where you expect your life to be when you're 30, 35, 40, whatever. And they, the researchers find that everyone's like just makes these really crazy forecasting or they think they're going to be the greatest things in sliced bread. And then it finds out like, oh, life doesn't turn out that way. Maybe you aren't, you know, you want to be married with kids and have, you know, a house and all these things or be famous. And none of that ends up happening. There's a couple of those things happen maybe, right? So your life doesn't turn out what it has to be. And that's fine. I'm saying most people don't meet their expectations. In my case, I remember when I was like 23, I was like, I knew like Warren Buffett had a million dollars by the time he was 30. And I was like, you know what? I want to have half a million. Remember, by the time he was 30, a million dollars like adjust for inflation was like 9 million. So I didn't even adjust for inflation and I cut it in half. I said, I should be able to get to half a million by the time I'm 30. You know, it should be good. And I hit 31 and I still wasn't worth half a million dollars. So like sometimes we don't hit our expectations like that happens. It's okay. It's not the worst thing in the world. But then the good thing, though, is like people start to have that, you know, midlife crisis, that's that middle slump. And, you know, they expect life's going to get worse. But actually, a lot of people, you see that happiness kind of starts to go up over time, right? As you get older, it starts to go up. And so there's kind of like that, you know, we end our lives as value stocks. And like we expect things to be, you know, terrible and we're all beaten down. Yet, you know, life ends up giving us some upside surprise, whether that's grandchildren or children or some sort of something in life that gives us some sort of upside. And so I think that's the thing to think about is like, hey, it's okay if you haven't gotten to where you want to be, especially on your financial journey. But like over the long term, like generally people will, you'll end up finding more upside surprises than maybe you'd expect. So keep her, stay in the game basically. All right. See, we ended it on a positive note. We are, we ultimately we'll, we'll be value stocks people. We'll be okay. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on this show. Please tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your blog and your new book. Yeah. So you guys can, if anyone wants to DM me, um, you can find me on Twitter at dollars and data, or you can DM me at Instagram. It's Nick Majuli. Just make sure to spell it right. I have imposters. So just M-A-G-G-I-U-L-L-I. Yeah. You can find me at my blog of dollarsanddata.com and you can find my book, Just Keep Buying on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. So thank you guys for your time. Appreciate your time, journeyers. And I will link all of that in the episode show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, 
your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here, so show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast, with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.